Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about a very interesting topic. We're going to speak about Israel and religious groups in Israel. I tell you a little story. I was teaching last year my class and some of my students, they asked me, how is it possible that in Israel, Jewish people are protesting against Jewish people? they could see some TV reports how different religious groups are fighting or are using sort of little violence against each other. And they were not able to understand what's the cause of that, what's the principle. So today I'm joined with Michael Friedman. Hello, Michael. Hi, hi, Martin. Thank you for having me. Michael is going to explain to us uh, various religious groups the perspectives on the state of Israel, and we will try to find the cause of that movement. Michael is an assistant professor lecturer in political science at the University of Haifa. He is also part of the political behavior lab with Israel Weissmal Manor and Liran Harsgor, and a member of Haifa Data Science Research Center. Michael obtained his PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His research interests are religion, conflict, and citizen-state interaction in Israel and the Muslim world. His work combines big data approaches with experiments and in-depth interviews. Michael publishes in multiple high-profile academic journals, including American Sociological Review, Political Behavior, Political Science Research Methods, and the Journal of Conflict Resolution. So, Michael, let's start with the first question, and we have to clarify at the beginning this important fact. What's the perspective of different religious groups in Israel on the state of Israel? And today we're going to deal with two of them. Firstly, Haredim, and second, Datim. Um, so, historically, I would say that, uh, that the main difference was that generally the Haredim or ultra-Orthodox were opposed to the state or opposed to Zionism. Um, so when, when, when Zionism first uh, originated, secular Zionism, uh, the, the, the ultra-Orthodox of the Paradigm were very opposed. Uh, they saw the state as something nationalist, something secular, but definitely something not religious. And, and attitudes ranged from outright opposition, which you still see today among certain groups, such as Naturi Karta, some other group, Satmer, versus some sort of neutral, uh, at best, accommodation, uh, or at least not active opposition. Uh, so that was one group. And then the other group, the Dati'im, or the religious, uh, took a much more positive approach towards the state. So in English, uh, let's say they call themselves religious Zionists. So in other words, they wanted to identify as Zionists, but they also wanted to identify as religious. Um, from their perspective, I would say there were two main camps. One was a, a more pragmatic approach, which was basically that, listen, we're in Europe, there's a lot of anti-Semitism, we need a refuge, uh, Zionism, is, Zionism is offering that. So more of a pragmatic, uh, let's sort of cooperate with the, with the Zionists. The other group though was a lot more excited. Usually this is called the more messianic, uh, wing of uh, religious Zionism, which is basically that not only is is, is Zionism a, uh, a good thing, it's actually a really great thing because um, 
it's eventually going to lead us to redemption. Um, according to the this the main thinker, Rav, Rav Cook, um, he basically argued that secular Zionism was unwittingly carrying out God's will. And uh, and therefore, not only not only was it okay to support Zionism, it was actually uh, a commandment or even a, a biblical obligation to to support Zionism. So you basically have the range from like outright opposition on the Haredi side versus very enthusiastic support on the religious or the team side. And in terms of living and geography of Israel, those groups, they live together or they are separated in terms of living? For instance, you're walking through Tel Aviv or Jerusalem and those groups, they have different suburbs or they basically live together. How is it? That's a great, that's a that's an interesting question. I would say generally, uh, there are areas where they where they make up more or less like in, like where let's say Haredim have their like own cities, so let's say B'nai Brak, certain neighborhoods in Jerusalem, where I would say they make up about ninety percent of the population, if not more. And then on the religious side, I would say um, a lot of them live in settlements. A lot of them also have religious neighborhoods, where also the the makeup will be very largely uh, religious. There are a few places where there's maybe a bit of a mix of um, Haredim and Datim, but for the most part, they keep separate. And and probably one of the one of the main reasons for that is that their school streams are separate. So in Israel, you have uh, you have to select into a stream. So the main streams are usually let's say like secular, religious, ultra orthodox, and um, and Arab. And so usually, usually, so the schools are in different places. People go to different schools. There's maybe a little bit of mixing at the margins, like on the borders of neighborhoods. But for the most part, these are separate uh, communities. For our international students and audience, can we recognize who is Haredim and who is uh, Datim by visual? Like I'm walking and I can see. Usually, yes. Uh, people are very... Um, uh, People, you could usually identify people by their dress. So ultra-Orthodox will generally wear uh, like a black suit, white shirt, uh, black um, uh, yarmulke or head covering, hats uh, perhaps. Um, also their their um, hair was sort of like what you'd uh, see, like traditional, like uh, Jewish looking, like they have sideburns, beard usually. Religious people uh, more or less like look more like regular people the way that you could tell that they're religious is usually they wear like a like a head covering um but but the head covering is usually made of uh knitted material and um and actually uh the pew center had an interesting piece a few years ago where they surveyed different types of religious jews and there they had a whole section about the different hair covers and how you could recognize what type of religious jew they are based on their um hair cover their, their hair covering. Okay. You mentioned that the ultra-Orthodox community's view of the state has shifted towards more pragmatic approach. Could you elaborate more on what do you think has driven this change? So I would say that the main reason why ultra-Orthodox people are more accommodating of the state or more pragmatic today is because politically uh, when, when the state was first founded, they, they refrained from participating in politics. Uh, but about, uh, but about 40 years ago, they, they were, they decided to go into politics 
and um, and they've really benefited a lot from from the political game. So usually they're in every coalition. They receive a lot of money for their schools. They receive a lot of funding for their communities. So over time, the so in order to justify that political participation, also the um, partaking of of money from the government, more pragmatic approaches in the ultra orthodox community have have um, have risen. And then I would say the other thing is that uh, the population they have a lot of children, and the share of the percentage of their of their population is going up a lot. So it seems you have more and more ultra orthodox. There's less of a fear that if they get involved in in secular Israeli society, they'll assimilate. Um, now, now they sort of see it more as like, okay, we're big enough now that we can participate, and we don't have to worry about assimilating. Uh, so, so more pragmatic concerns. Also, the community needs to raise money. Not everyone can learn in uh, yeshiva. Yeshiva is is the post um, uh, is their religious studies that that men usually stay until about the age of forty or fifty. Mm -hmm. In terms of the politics, when you speak about ultra orthodox. Jews, Haredim, men and women. How is it? Oh, so I should I should point out that um, it's a pretty traditional society in terms of uh, gender roles. So for so the ultra orthodox political parties do not have any women on their in their parties, uh, which is uh, they're the only parties that don't have women. Um, even at this point, the Islamic parties, like the, the, the more religious Arab parties, have women on their list. The, the, the team, the religious Zionists, do also have women on their list. The ultra-Orthodox uh, basically don't believe that women should serve as political leaders, or, or really community leaders for that matter. Uh, um, I'm, not, I, I'm pretty sure there's no uh, female mayors either at, on the, um, I mean, for the Haredi cities, for the ultra-Orthodox cities. Um, so, but, but with that though, um, even though there has been on the margins, a little bit of effort to give women more of a role in politics for the most part, like, at least when it comes to voting, men and women will both vote for the party, even though there are no, um, women on the list. So in, in the Datin community, that's different because women can be part of the politics, but in Haradim community, women are not part of the politics because of tradition. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And also, generally, the gender roles are much more defined in the ultra-Orthodox community. Uh, ironically, um, women, women, the women actually work a lot in terms of the labor participation, primarily because uh, the men sort of go to do religious studies. Uh, they have like large families, so a lot of the women will work uh, full time and also have, I think on average, they have about seven children. So very large families. Um, work is sort of seen as like uh, uh, less prestigious than religious studies. So even if like men do work, they do it in a way that's like uh, on the side, off the books not full-time, and even if they do do it full-time, they're called working uh, ultra-Orthodox. They're sort of seen as uh, as less prestigious than someone who, who learns in, in a yeshiva or religious uh, studies. When we spoke about driving force behind the Orthodox community and the state, let's apply the same question to Zionist community, that team, and the relations with the state. So what's, what is driving this movement? 
So I so interestingly enough, while I would say the ultra orthodox has been more of an acceptance of um, the state. So, for example, uh, you might even see now prayers for the state or on Memorial Day. Uh, ultra orthodox politicians will even go to military cemeteries, which is something new. Uh, among the among the religious, they're still very um, Zionist, but I would say it's a little more um, restrained. There's been a bit of a step back. Um, one of the main reasons that people point to is the 2005 uh, disengagement from the Gaza Strip. So, uh, if, do, do you want me to elaborate on on that? Or absolutely, why not? So, in so if you if if we remember our history. In 2005, Ariel Sharon withdrew from the Gaza Strip and also several settlements in the in the northern West Bank. Um, and, and so in order to do this, he had to evacuate about 10,000 settlers who were almost all uh, religious Zionists. And the religious Zionist community was very opposed to this withdrawal. They saw this as a betrayal of, of uh, Zionism, a betrayal of religious Zionism, a reversal of the messianic process. So since that happened in 2005, I would say that the two um, main movements is one is that is on one side, some people said this shows us that we need to take control of the state institutions. Like we can't rely anymore on secular Zionism to carry out um, the Zionist mission. So so more more religious people in the army, more religious people in government, more religious people in the in media sort of uh, an idea, more religious think tanks. So um, uh, if you've been following recent Israeli politics, there's been a lot of uh, attention to, to the role of right-wing think tanks and which are really religious um, in, in, in all these new policies. But then the other approach has been a little bit to say that, uh, you know, secular Zionism was good for its time. It sort of got everything started. But at this point, it's not, you know, if they continue, uh, you know, to accept LGBT rights, to be, you know, to violate the Shabbat. So even even in some ways, a more ultra-Orthodox approach to say that, that like, we respect it, but but we don't embrace it as much as we used to. And there are even some movements that uh, say, like, won't say the special prayer anymore on, on Independence Day and things like that. There, there have been some, uh, and generally, the and generally, I would say that um, if in the past, if let's say the the army, the police said to do something, people would say, oh, you have to listen. Whereas now they might say, no, no, you don't need to listen anymore. Like, what's important is that uh, we do what we need to do. You, you certainly know that when we speak about, let's say, Afghanistan or different states where the Muslim religious is, is implemented and Sharia law and all those things, we are speaking about to what extent is that state linked to the religion, if it's you know, elaborating, if it's increasing or it's decreasing. When we take Israel, in the world, the perspective is that Israel is a very liberal state with all the high-tech companies, startups, and all these, you know, modern movements. On the other hand, when we're listening to your talks, there is impression that Israel is getting more religious as a state. So that sanctity of the state, how do you think, or what can you tell us about to what extent is the religion penetrating the state, the institutions, and how can you see this in the future? So in Israel, you have this um, 
thing called the religious status quo, which is basically the agreement that was reached in the early days of the state on the role of religion uh, regarding the state. So, for example, let's say no, no, no public transportation on the Sabbath. Uh, food needs to be um, kosher at, in, in state institutions. The army, let's say, has to keep a, all the food has to be kosher. Um, and and there's been a lot of tension over the years. So it's so it's basically both sides have reached the compromise, even though both sides didn't really like it. Let's say the religious wanted more religion in the state. The secular wanted less religion. But I should say that if you actually do check, let's say you mentioned Afghanistan, if you do actually check, uh, uh, like using statistics, using data on there's there's people who've collected data on um, on how religious, how much religious legislation, let's say, is there in a state, uh, Israel ranks very high. Like Israel actually is a very religious state, um, at least in terms of legislation. Uh, but at the same time, like that doesn't mean that there aren't like very secular areas of the country. So I would say probably like it mostly breaks down to to like where you are in Israel. So, for example, if you're in Tel Aviv, like it feels like a pretty liberal, secular place. But if you're in Jerusalem, it feels like a very uh, religious place. So the, I, I would say the compromise is that is that even if at the national level things are pretty uh, religious, at the local level there's there's generally a lot of leeway for people to mayors to do what they want. Um, with that though, uh, even though that that there are strong liberal movements who want to make Israel, uh, oh wait wait sorry, one more thing I should mention though is that divorce and marriage, like the personal family issues, those have always been in the regulated according to religious law. And that's probably something that gets the most amount of pushback. So a lot of Israelis don't want to. So if you want to get married in Israel, you have to get married with the rabbinate. Um, so a lot of Israelis don't want to do that anymore. But there is no secular marriage in Israel. So the way that they get around it is, is that you're allowed to marry. If you get married abroad, like outside of Israel, then the marriage gets recognized uh, retroactively here. So a lot of people will just say just fly to Cyprus or Greece to get married, just to get away from, uh, just just to avoid having to get married with the rabbinates. So that's been the traditional issue, I would say, that irks Israelis the most. Um, so even though over the years there's been a lot of um, talk of, of making Israel less religious, let's say having some sort of secular marriage, more public transportation on the Sabbath, I would say now that with the religious parties in charge, um, there's the 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 direction is going the other way in other words like there is small attempts to make israel uh, more religious uh but overall i would say that the the status quo is more or less stable since since what the religious parties really want to like make the state more religious but the secular parties really hate it so i would say the compromise is always sort of more or less in place um, but, but yeah, I would say if, if let's say five, 10 years ago, like Israel's becoming a little more liberal, I would say at this point with this, especially with this current government, Israel's becoming a little more, uh, religious. Can you please elaborate a little bit about the Israeli army for our international students and audience? What's the relations between Haredim and Datim when it comes to Israeli army can both members of the community serve as Israeli soldiers. And we also know that the, the Israeli army, there is a mandatory service for people. 
So what's the impact of the religion on these? So I would say that's actually probably the main dividing line between the Dati'im and the Haredim, because the Dati'im do serve in the army uh, and even serve in like very good combat units, you know, become officers, this and that. See, army service is a very important part of their um, even religious experience. Whereas the ultra-Orthodox um, are, have always been opposed to being drafted and they're, they actually can receive an exemption. Um, so, so actually what, there, there are governments who, that have fallen because, because people wanted to, let's say, draft ultra-Orthodox. The ultra-Orthodox party said, if you try to pass legislation on that, we're gonna, we're gonna um, uh, leave the coalition. Uh, right now, actually, there's there's no formal bill. Just like informally, ultra orthodox aren't serving because the the previous bill, it's called the Tal Law, expired and it's never been uh, renewed because it's very politically contentious. Contentious. Um, some some efforts have been made to draft the ultra orthodox, but like they haven't really succeeded. They've gotten maybe like two three percent of the population. Uh, of the of the of the eligible population, um, and 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 this is this is a big point of um, friction in Israeli society, uh, um, because people feel that you know, like you said, it's a mandatory draft for men and women. Um, most people do serve, um, you know, maybe on the margin, some people get out of it, but most people do serve, and there's a lot of bitterness towards the ultra orthodox for for avoiding uh, army service. In terms of being that team, and I see the ultra-Orthodox, they don't serve. Is there any way that I can avoid service in Israeli army? Or because it's mandatory, I must go no matter what? No, so there are built-in exemptions. So, for example, if you say that you're studying in yeshiva, uh, in like a religious seminary, then, then they'll exempt you. Usually people do is that they get exemptions you know, let's say from the age of 18 to let's say 27, 28. And then once they hit like 28 or something, once they have kids or this and that, then the, then the state just releases them from army service. That's usually what happens. Um, so the ultra-Orthodox, I would say the vast majority do this, like maybe 95%. Among the Dati'im, I would say there's a very small group now, this group that I mentioned beforehand that, that sort of turned a little bit away from the state. So maybe five percent don't do army service at all and and there also is a certain group which does um like a shortened service uh maybe let's say like a year or like a year and a half um but generally it's done in coordination with the army um so that's that's sort of seen as less problematic and then generally like the majority of the teams serve just like the majority of secular or um or, um, actually, among the Arab community, this is, also, this is also an issue. Like a lot of his, Arabs are actually exempt formally from the army. Um, but whereas ultra-Orthodox, technically, they get drafted, but then they then they have to um, apply for an exemption. But the exemption is basically automatic. Uh, so, so there there are ways to to there, there's like a built-in way to get out of uh, army service, which is religious studies. But there are also informal ways to get out. So let's say you could say that you're, you know, um, you could get a, psych a psychiatric assessment and maybe that's something that could be bought. But like it's very much on the on the margins. 
Okay. That, that kind of craft object, I'd say. One of the common question, questions I receive from my students was about if you are Israeli, but you are not Jewish or Jew, can you also serve in Israeli army or not? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So first of all, um, uh, well, first of all, there are a lot of Israelis who, who came from uh, uh, Eastern Europe or Russian speaking countries who are not technically Jewish, but they have Israeli citizenship. Um, and they and they all, and there's and there's no exemption for. In other words, the the army doesn't doesn't distinguish between Jews and non-Jews. So like all Israelis need to serve. Uh, they do distinguish though between Jews and Arabs though. So some um, if so most Arabs are exempt except for the the Druze. That's like a special group that serves. Um, and and the Russian um, non-Jews also serve. Um, but let's say if you want to. Um, Israel also ha the, the the Israeli army also has like a volunteer um, uh, program for 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 non-Israelis, and that's for Jews or non-Jews. That's called Machal, um, and 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 that does get a certain amount of volunteers. Although most of the volunteers, I assume, are Jewish, but I think there 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 are some volunteers who are maybe just American and just want to fight or whatever. Let's speak a little bit about the government. Uh, after many attempts. You finally have a government uh, led by Netanyahu. So, can we describe the government in terms of their religious identity? Are there Haredims? Are there Datims? Or are there different groups? So, the the, the current government is actually a, a very right wing religious government, and and but it all it has though. Um, both so there are three religious party political parties in Israel. One is uh, religious Zionist, and that's in the coalition. And the other two are both Haredi. One is uh, well, something I haven't really mentioned yet is is that there's a big distinction between Ashkenazim in Israel. So Ashkenazim are more Eastern European origins, and versus Fardim, who are more um, uh, mid Middle East, Africa, uh, Asia. Or Asian origins. Um, so in the ultra-Orthodox, those are two separate um, communities. So the names of those parties, so all three of those parties are sitting together with the Likud, which is Netanyahu's party, and those and those are the parties that compose the government. So Netanyahu is basically uh, completely dependent on the religious parties for support. And then in terms of the, and, and then I would say that the political cooperation between all three religious parties is very high right now to the extent that that informally uh, all three parties are basically come as like a package deal at this point. In other words, uh, like if you want to make a right wing government, you're going to need all three of our parties. Uh, traditionally, um, like or historically, it was easier to separate between those parties because um, like in other words, like a government can form with just the religious Zionists and not the and not the Haredim, or it could solve with the Haredim, not the Datim. But but at least on the political level, the the Haredim and Datim realize that they have a lot of common interests, and um, and uh, and and to some extent they've set aside a lot of their disagreements. So let's say army service. Uh, I think the religious quietly support the ultra-Orthodox exemption, at least the political leadership. So once they were able to put aside the issues that, that they were in disagreement over, they sort of found issues that they were more 
Um, that, so, for example, ultra-Orthodox never really cared about the settlement movement or about, you know, some of the things that are very important for the religious Zionists. But to sit together, they would say, okay, we'll agree that, you know, we, 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 we oppose peace with the Palestinians, like, because you guys oppose peace, but you support us on these issues. So I'd definitely say that there's, like, a lot of cooperation between the parties. And then even things like photos, like, you do, you'll even have photos now of, like, religious politicians visiting ultra-Orthodox rabbis, which is not something that happened in the past. Uh, or even ultra-Orthodox politicians giving talks at like religious uh, Zionist synagogues. So you definitely have a lot more um, cooperation that there's been in the past. Why and I would that? say the political cooperation is much higher than the social uh, integration on the ground. Why is Netanyahu supported by the religious groups is this something coming from his family or background you know because or or is it just pure political calculations that he must uh, keep those people those groups together so he is in power so i would say that a lot of israel's instability or the reason why it was so hard to put a government together is is that netanyahu has a lot of um corruption cases against him and uh, he's alienated a lot of his more natural right-wing allies. So in other words, if you look at um, Israel's voting patterns, like the two, the most important distinction is probably between the right-wing parties and the left-wing parties. And, 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 but in Israel right now, I would say uh, the right-wing is clearly one. There's, they, they make up about, uh, there's 120 seats. They, they have about 80 seats and you only need 60 for a coalition. So anyone other than Netanyahu would very easily be able to make a right-wing coalition. Um, but but Netanyahu has really alienated a lot of his right-wing partners. So actually, a lot of the right-wing groups or the center groups that would make uh, that, that would have made coalitions in the past are now in the opposition. So this left him with very few choices. Um, and so in the end, the only parties that are really willing to sit with them were the right wing and religious parties. Sorry, the parties are both religious and right wing. Uh, so it's more, I don't even think Netanyahu, I personally think Netanyahu actually doesn't like this uh, government. It's sort of like a government of last resort. In other words, his personal preference would be to have a more balanced coalition. And in, in the 15, 20 years he served as prime minister, if you look historically at his coalitions, he's always tried to have a more balanced coalition. Partly because if you have a balanced coalition, he has like a lot more leverage. In other words, not because like let's say if the left wants something, he can say, "Oh, I can't do that because well, my what will my right wing partner say?" And if the right wing partner says wants something, he's able to sort of say, "Well, what will my left wing partner say?" But with the current coalition, he really has very very little uh, leverage. So almost anyone in the in the in the coalition can basically say, "This is what I want," and like he's very. Um, vulnerable because he doesn't really have uh, any any alternatives. So I, I would say that uh, Netanyahu has created a very dangerous reality where he's made a very right-wing, very religious government and, 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 and with no real built-in restraints. So actually Netanyahu, some people, I, I personally think is probably one of the more moderate members of his government. Um, but what he has allowed is, and and is, is he's allowed um, extremists to essentially dictate uh, government policy, 
And at least according to the polls, I don't. I mean, if Israel would hold another election, uh, the, the, it seems like the voters will really punish him. Like, like it, even his own voters, like the Likud party voters, are not, are not happy with this government. So, for example, the average Likud voter doesn't want, you know, uh, more religious, let's say, let's say legislation. Um, so... So, so I would say that going back to your question, it's more of a political calculus and and not one, but one that he's sort of being forced into. If he had options, I don't think he would ever have chosen to form the, have formed this government. Just a theoretical question: Do you think that Israel needs a new political party, and if so, which one? <laughs> so every almost every election, there's a um, there's realignments. And so I would say that uh, the center generally is, is very in flux. Like you have like a left, the left wing parties are pretty stable. The right wing parties are pretty stable. Then the center is always sort of um, mixing it up. Um, so I don't think, um, I don't know if different parties will solve the problem. I think Israel does, should, should consider a system of government, although there's a lot of debate how this would happen, that would essentially disempower the extremists. Because the way that it works now in Israel's coalition government, if let's say you have uh, like five parties that make up the coalition, um, and and one party, let's say, has four or five seats, but if they leave, um, then then the coalition falls apart. That that, that party has like a lot, disproportionate amount of power and, that, and that's so generally there's a, 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 a in the political science crowd or in the the, the consensus is, is that in israel um extreme views have too much power and and the moderates are sort of pushed out um so uh i don't know i don't really know how to but the, the problem is though, it's, there's a lot of arguing how exactly you'd be able to achieve that and then, of course, you like the, the the small parties that you that you would need in order to support that will will oppose anything. So, what you would really need is the large parties to get together and, and agree some sort of uh, realignment, like you mentioned. But but to, but this realignment won't happen with uh, Netanyahu in power. It's possible that maybe in the future, uh, whoever replaces Netanyahu would be more open to these kinds of ideas. In terms of the foreign policy, how are those tensions between Haredim and Datim viewed or viewed abroad, uh, for instance, in the United States, in the European Union, as a political scientist and scholar? Do you discuss that topic with your colleagues and what they think about this? I would say that the Haredim mostly defer to the Datim on this issue. So like, I would say the political compromises is that in terms of foreign policy, uh, uh, we'll defer to your preferences because the, the team have strong preferences in terms of, uh, let's say peace with the Palestinians, uh, settlements, they're very strongly opposed, whereas the, the Haredim are a little more neutral. Uh, and in exchange, the, the, the team will more defer on religious issues to the ultra-Orthodox. So if in the past the, the a lot of the, the team opposed, let's say, religious legislation or religious coercion, now I would say uh, they're they're less opposed to it. Um, so I would say that in, I would say that, that 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 in terms of foreign policy, the Haredim will defer to the the team, and but in terms of let's say domestic policy or 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 religious issues, the the team will defer more to the Haredim, and that's been like a pretty stable arrangement for them.
if Israel has those religious groups and communities inside of Israel, what about ambassadors abroad? Can Haredim and Datim be ambassador or it must be only one or religious group or, or how, how does it work? Because some students said, look, if you have Haredim negotiating with, let's say, some countries which are like Japan or, or South Korea, and if you have Datim negotiating with the same countries, it might be a different perspective. I would say that Haredim, for the most part, will not um, uh, take ambassador posts. I'm not even sure if there's any ambassadors who, who, who are openly Haredi. Um, I think that would be too... Um, that would be too... Like, oh, until recently, uh, even the Haredim uh, refused to actually formally serve as ministers in the government. They would, they would serve in the coalition, but they wouldn't take ministries. They would only serve as deputies uh, because they didn't want to be seen as part of, like, the... Uh, as, as part of the secular state, like that, that was seen as too close. So I, I would say, if, I would say the form, the in terms of ambassadors or things like that, you're only going to see the team or 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 secular, and and the government generally, like in terms of ambassadors and things like that, like they're pretty pragmatic. I think they'll mostly use uh, uh, secular people or or religious people who aren't too controversial, um, things like that. Yeah. Do you also have any debates in terms of high politics? What would be the ideal model for the state of Israel? I think the for the for the Haredim, I think ideally they they kind of want to take over the state, but I think they're willing to be patient with it. So, in other words, I think the way that they view things now is that from a demographic perspective. There may be 10 to 15 percent of the of the population now, but you know, in 30, 40 years, there'll be let's say let's say 30 percent of the population, and then at that point, it might be appropriate to to um, to try to take over. Uh, and in the meantime, we can kind of wait and like um, and, and 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 be and be pragmatic in certain in certain instances. Uh, and, and I also think another reason why there's been this alliance between Haredim and Datim is that I also think they envision a future where where religion will play a much more central part in the state. And um, and and what what I said earlier is that part of the opposition to Zionism was that it was secular Zionism, right? But but if the if the Haredim were were able to make the state much more religious, then then there'd be less opposition to it. Like why not? Why why would we oppose a uh, state where we more or less control things. Um, so I would say that they that they distinguish between their short-term interests and their long-term vision. And the long-term vision, I think, is is eventually the state will be uh, run by them or at least like mostly run by them. There are different views on to what extent is Israel a democratic state. What's your stand? <laughs> Uh, uh, wow. Well, maybe to simplify things, I would say that it's important to distinguish between Israel within the Green Line and Israel over the Green Line. Uh, the way that, um, no, let's say Freedom House, uh, I served as a consultant for Freedom House uh, or, or uh, how other agencies rank them because because it's a little complicated, the whole issue of, of occupation, democracy. But if, if you look within Israel, the consensus among most um 
um, let's say Freedom House or, or other uh, agencies that Israel's a democracy, but not 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 amazing. So let's say like Israel scores in the 70s out of let's say for a scale of zero to 100, which more or less places it in uh, Eastern European dom democracy levels. So like uh, better than Hungary, but let's say like worse than Poland. Um, certainly not Western um, European, but I would say the main, the main, the main, the main reason why Israel scores poorly is 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 the is they do very well in terms of um, so usually democracy scores you can think of as like what are the institutions institutions and procedures like in other words is there uh, a, a democratic vote and there Israel usually scores pretty well. But then, of course, uh, most democracy scores also take into consideration things like uh, rights, media, courts, uh, things like that. And there, Israel scores less well, most mostly because of the fact that Israel's um, hasn't done a great job in in terms of integrating uh, the Arab uh, minority. A lot of Palestinians feel a lot of the Pal Palestinians who live in Israel feel are are, are uh, face a certain amount of discrimination, and then there are other things. Let's say like uh, uh, like LG LGBT rights or, or or media freedom, where Israel is is just okay at. Um, so I would say overall, like relying on Freedom House, Israel is definitely a democracy, albeit imperfect. However, I'm not sure how much um, you've been following current events, but. Uh, the the last few months, Israel has seen an attempt to reform the judiciary, judiciary which has attracted uh, large protests. Like almost every week now, there's like about a few hundred thousand people who protest uh, in the streets. And if, if that reform were to pass, basically that reform, the, the proposed reform is to basically uh, very much curtail judicial review, take away a lot of the power from the courts and, and give it over to the government. And if that were to pass, I think Israel would be considered uh, like an imperfect democracy. Like it would definitely hurt their score. And I'm, I'm personally worried also that if that um, legislation were to pass, it's possible or likely that other legislation that would also be seen as anti-democratic might also be considered. Um, so I would say right now Israel's at a threshold, uh, or sorry, not threshold, but a crossroads if the if this government continues and is able to pass some of the reforms that they want to pass, Israel's democracy score will definitely drop, and it could head into some sort of like Hungary situation, where like or or maybe even Turkey at the extreme, where like is where like you go democratic backsliding. Um, but it's also possible that this government will. For now, they've sort of stepped away from the legislation or tried weakening it, but it's it's still very flux. And it's also possible the government could fall. Um, if any of those things were to happen, then then it's possible Israel would 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 maintain its democratic status. But I would definitely say that, um, like, even if Israel is a democracy now, things might look very different, and in 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 maybe even in five years, maybe maybe less. What's a little bit unclear internationally is why is this happening? Because in the West and in the East. Basically, we have Jewish scholars who are excellent in legal science, in legal professions. So from that point of view, Israel should be as a sort of model country for the justice and how to execute the law. 
And suddenly we have that movement of taking those competencies from the courts to the government. So in some way, this seems as a non-logical attempt to do what? Well, I think I think it partly starts with the with the I would say the motivation is twofold. One is that from Netanyahu's perspective, uh, by taking power away from the courts, he's basically able to um, he's he's able to preserve his status as prime minister, be less worried about the corruption, and it's an it's an implicit threat, I think, also upon the courts that if if you're gonna um, try to get uh, bring me down for corruption, I'll, I'll curtail that power. So there actually are like different law. One of the laws that they're considering is giving immunity to the to the prime minister. So he wouldn't basically he wouldn't be able to be um, convicted, or also to change the makeup of the courts, which would also so put people who are more favorable uh, to the government in in charge. Um, so that's from his perspective, which I would say was a very narrow political calculation. From the religious party's perspective. I think a lot of them prefer some sort of um, religious law, which which is different from Israeli law, um, and partly because I would say the main tension is and 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 the main tension is is is, is let's say things like equality clauses. So let's say um, this is also true in the states, uh, in the U in the U.S. Let's say um, legislation for LGBT couples uh, is seen as like anti-religious, like. So, so if if the courts say that we need to, you know, do something like like why why should we have to do that? Like we we should be able to decide on our own uh, using religious law. So, um, so so it's true that getting to your question, I would say it depends on on people's interests. Like, so the reason why there's been a large protest in Israel is because I think the majority of the population, or at least the left, uh, the the people who voted for the left wing parties and the center parties. Uh, strongly believe that Israel needs to be a democracy, um, but there, there are in, there are people who there are people in, especially on the right side, especially on the religious side, who don't really see that that much importance in democracy. And part of it is also, of course, relates to the occupation, uh, which is that that some of the settlers basically think think we should annex the West Bank or, or do something with the Palestinians. And that would be much easier to do if the courts aren't there to stop it. Part of it is also, uh, they say that part of this is um, is also some anger uh, in religious entity communities against the court for not stopping the 2005 disengagement. This is something that I've heard. So in other words, like if the courts really cared about uh, people's rights. Why didn't they stop the 2005 disengagement, which involved evacu, like which involved which involved evicting people from their homes and things like that? So at the end of the day, I would guess I guess um, I would say that there's a perception that the that the secular court or that the court is is sort of uh, the last refuge for the left wing elite in Israel. Uh, they call it here t- tyranny of the minority. Right, so you you can also turn turning the majority, but turning the the minority, uh, and 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 there's a perception that the courts overstepped its bounds, and and it's time to return power to the to the people or to the legislator legislature, uh, and then if, but of course if the legislature is is, mo- is mostly composed of religious parties, then then you're going to see uh, legislation which isn't you know necessarily democratic from like a Western perspective, so. E- so, for example, religious parties want to see something like uh, 
no public transportation on the Sabbath, even even if in like a, in a Western country, like the right to to let's say movement or or, or or would be would be considered more important than let's say the right to to keep the Sabbath or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, do you think that this judicial issue is going to divide Haradim and Datim even more, or do you think that they might find some compromise to to coexist together? So, or actually, on this of... on this issue, I would say that the team and the Haradim agree that there should be judicial reform. Uh, so, if you go to the protests, let's say. Um, the Dati'im loudly support the judicial reform and the Haredim quietly support it. Um, and, and so this is actually an issue that's sort of that they're that they're both able to agree upon, because let's say both of them agree that, you know, uh, we, we should be able to decide and not the secular courts. Um, the secular courts is seen as both is seen as an enemy of the settlement movement and as an enemy of the of what's a religious legislation. So it's sort of like a common enemy for, for both groups. What is the main issue at the moment which is putting together Haradim and Datim? Is this the judicial reform? I would say the the support for I would say um, support for taking away power from the secular elites, uh, both of them agree upon, even if they might have different ideas what they should do afterwards, they both agree that the secular elite's been in charge for too long. Both of them have certain amounts of resentments towards the secular elite. Um, so each one sort of calls themselves uh, uh, the second Israel, right? So in other words, like, like you have the privileged Israel or the, the secular uh, um, Zionists who sort of ran the country more or less the way that they wanted to, and now it's time for a change. So, so even if they might not agree on what that change should look like, they do both agree, like, the secular elite have been doing it wrong, um, and then, um, and then, uh, you know, both groups have suffered discrimination to some extent. So, if you look, let's say, at the army, there's never been a, a religious um, head of the army, even though, like, even though religious people do serve. Um, so, in other words, both sides have certain grievances. Um, and then, uh, and then also because the court seen as like a left wing uh, is, is seen mostly as aligning with left wing interests, and both the religious and 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 uh, Haredim are, are mostly right winged, so th that's another thing they can kind of uh, agree upon. How were those two groups behaving during the COVID pandemic? Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. So I would actually say there there was some tension. I would say religious people, religious communities generally were more likely to take precautions, uh, especially at the beginning, and 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 let's say close their schools, more or less follow government directives, get vaccinated. I would say the ultra orthodox. There was a lot more tension there because, uh, you know, some leaders thought we do need to follow the COVID restrictions. Other leaders thought, no, we don't need to follow the COVID restrictions. Some leaders were very opposed to closing the schools. So let's say like all the schools in the country were closed except the ultra-Orthodox schools. So actually for actually for that uh, issue, I would say there was tension between the religious community, which more saw the value of following the COVID-19 directives. 
and, and was mostly in alignment with like the more secular or, or, or the rest of Israel versus the ultra orthodox who um, who kind of did their own thing. Although I should note that even ultra orthodox, there was a lot of disagreements. Like you know, so so what ended up happening was is that a lot of like like each community would usually follow whatever their religious leader thought. So some some communities were more careful, other communities were less. Um, so so yeah, that but but because COVID nineteen is finished, uh, finished. I mean, I, it's it's mostly become a non-issue in Israel at this point. So I guess like the rest of the world. So so it's not something that divides them anymore. The communities. The last topic for today's interview is the situation at the universities and higher education when we speaking or we discussing the Haradim and Datim. So how would you evaluate this in terms of current situation and what's the development of that issue? So the ultra-Orthodox generally generally don't go to universities. Like not um, at all? Yeah, not at all. Uh, at the margins, there's been... They might go to some colleges, but but you might have special colleges that are set up for for ultra orthodox. So that that will be you know all male colleges or all female colleges. Actually, females are more likely to get higher education, but higher education not not necessarily university studies, but more just you know post high school. Uh, the one of the main debates in Israel is whether universities should make more of an effort to attract ultra-Orthodox students, even at the cost of, let's say, so for example, like, should a university have a class that, that's 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 gender segregated? Um, so, because there's a, there's a belief that if, if the universities really want to get ultra-Orthodox people to come, they'll have to uh, follow some, basically, their directives, the main thing being gender segregation. So, you know, some academics think yes, but a lot of academics are, are, are strongly opposed. So, in other words, if ultra-Orthodox want to come to university, they're going to have to do it sort of according to the university rules and not according to the way that they would want to do it. So, for the most part, ultra-Orthodox, I mean, a very small minority go to universities. If, let's say, I walk around on Haifa campus or Hebrew University, which is in Jerusalem, if I see maybe, like, two or three ultra-Orthodox students, that's like a lot. Uh, in terms of the religious, the team mostly go to university. Uh, it's not uncommon to see them on university campuses. Um, but maybe in some ways this is this is similar to the fact that the team like like will will serve in the army and, and Haredim mostly won't. So university is in some ways just a continuation of that. So actually, you don't really have uh, that many spaces where you have the team and ultra-Orthodox um, uh, that need to, let's say, bargain with one another. Um, there, there just aren't that many common spaces that, that, that where that happens. But yeah, but even, let's say, like Haifa University specifically is more of a campus that attracts secular students or Arab students. Um, but but in, but if you go to other universities, let's say a Hebrew University, you'll see like a lot of religious students there. Can Haredim be a scholar and that team as well? I mean, because like this is something for my students if they want to explore the perspectives from the Haredim community or from that team, where to look? So I would say um, uh, Bar Ilan University 
is uh, or also uh, what's now called the uh, REL University, which is in the settlements. There you have more religious uh, faculty. So there are definitely some scholars who identify as religious or Dati, um, where, where you could see their um, perspectives. Uh, and also Bar Ilan University also has, um, it, it sort of technically defines itself also as a religious university. So, so you know, they offer like, um, as part of your course credits, you, let's say you could take some, some classes in like religious studies. Um, so I would say that's like the most religious uh, university. In terms of Haredim, that would be a lot harder to find. Um, I mean, there are some, um, there are some, ultra Haredi intellectuals who maybe write books or articles, but there there's not many. Um, most of their writing is 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 intended for like within the community. There's very little writing towards outside the community. With that, there are like, you know, a handful, I'm sure there are a handful of ultra-Orthodox um professors, but if I had to guess, like they're probably in things like mathematics, maybe law. You know, they're not necessarily in, in social science. Uh, off the top of my head, I can tell you that I know someone who, an ultra-Orthodox woman who got her uh, PhD a few years ago in political science, and she said she was the first ultra-Orthodox, I think woman, maybe not ever, maybe not, not ultra-Orthodox person, ultra-Orthodox woman to get a PhD. And, and it's possible that she's right. So so that, that, that kind of shows you to what extent, like, uh, how how like rare it is um, for for that for that combination to to happen. The last question is about research. So you are dealing with interviews with the discourse. How easy or how difficult is to get answers from both communities when you are researching your questions, your ideas, and that might be also quite interesting question for people who want to start researching this interesting issue. So how is it in practical life? Uh, difficult. I would say that most of my research on religious communities relies on uh, text analysis, where so I basically look at uh, texts that are written. The reason, One reason why is because texts are accessible or they're easy to find. Uh, religious communities produce lots of uh, text. Um, in terms of actual interviews itself, I, um, it would be it's harder to reach the ultra orthodox community. They're a lot more suspicious of researchers, especially if you're not from their um, community. You know, they they assume you might have an agenda, or um, which is maybe true, or, or 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 they're just generally just suspicious of 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 you know what 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 are you trying to get out of it. Um, and in but then I would say that in terms of accessibility, the politicians are more accessible than the rabbis. So if you want to interview ultra orthodox politicians, that's easier to to do than than if you want to or or news people. Uh, it, that's easier to do than the rabbis. The rabbis might, might just see it as a waste of time. Uh, uh, maybe the lower level rabbis, but but the higher level rabbis would be harder. Um, and then in terms of the religious Zionist community, I would say they're more accessible. But even there, um, you know, they, they, you would have to probably have some connections in order to get started. Gen generally, so let's say, um, you know, at Haifa University, there's people doing their PhD. Generally, the people who do their PhDs on the religious communities, like, come from those religious communities. 
just because you know it's me. I would say it'd be it'd be harder. I'd be surprised if if someone who's not not from those communities would be able to enjoy the same kind of access. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I, I think it would be difficult. Michael, thank you very much for your time, for your insightful thoughts and opinions about this sensitive topic, but extremely interesting topic for especially international students and audience. I wish you good luck with your research, and uh, we are looking for more articles coming from you. And again, good luck with everything, and thank you very much for your time that you found for our viewers. Okay, thank you, Martin. Yeah, thank you for having me. See you later.